0: Exodus 27, 9-21 is our text. The title, East of Eden. <clears throat> the big idea, come to the light, invite people to the light, and worship the light. Let me, let me start by talking about the hospitality of God. We serve a hospitable God, amen? And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see it in the garden. I mean, God creates everything, and he creates image bearers. Adam and Eve, and he gives them a place, a garden, and he gives them food, and he dwells with them. He walks with them in the cool of the day. He fellowships with them. We see it, of course, in the tabernacle, the Lord provides a place where he might dwell with his people in fellowship. He provides them with bread. He even leaves the light on. was Was that Motel 6, we'll leave the light on for you? I mean, probably the most inhospitable place. (laughs) I've stayed there multiple times, but by using that as their motto, they wanted to convey, hey, we are hospitable. But we know in the tabernacle that the light is left on, inviting God's people to come to Him. And of course, the, the climax of God's hospitality is found where? In the Gospels. And, oh man, comes to this crescendo, and I prayed about this just now, in Revelation, specifically chapter 21. In the Gospels, Jesus opens His life to His disciples and those who follow Him. And of course, our story ends with God's people in God's place with God, feasting and fellowshipping together forever. Amen? So praise God for his hospitality. I, wanted, I was thinking about this this morning when I was driving to church to gather with God's people. The, the third question I've been asking every week as we've been looking at the tabernacle and the different pieces of furniture is, you know, what did these things teach us about God? As Christians, right, we are called to imitate the Lord, amen? But if we go back to Genesis, we realize we're image bearers, we're made in God's image, we're made to imitate him. And so when we see that God is hospitable, we should seek to be What? Hospital, when we see that God is holy, we should seek to be what? When we see that God is compassionate and loving, we should seek to be compassionate and loving. And So when we look at this third question, what does this particular item teach us about God? We should seek to do those things. Amen? And we can, by the Spirit. All right. Last week, I think it's important when you're preaching through narrative, let's give a little context. Let's review what we looked at last week. We looked at the bronze altar What did we learn? So last week, for the first time, we stepped out of the tabernacle into the courtyard and we looked at this first item. So if you're coming from the east and you enter into the courtyard, the first thing you're going to see is this massive bronze altar. A few things worth mentioning. First and foremost, the bronze altar was a place of sacrifice. What did we learn last week? regarding the purpose of the bronze altar. Four things I highlighted quickly. Number one, it was a reminder. It was a reminder. It reminded God's people of their need and their problem. They need a substitute. They need a sacrifice. Why? Because they're sinful. They're unholy. It was a visible reminder of their need and their problem. Number two, renewal. You see, the sacrifice of an animal on the altar, and the subsequent meal shared with the Lord served as a covenant renewal ceremony. It was God's way for God's people to recommit themselves to God's covenant. Third, rescue. More than anything, the bronze altar represented God's gracious provision. Provision of rescue for His people the only way back into God's presence was through the shedding of what? The shedding of blood. God's people, unholy and sinful, were deserving of death. And on the bronze altar, a living thing died in the place of God's people taking the punishment they deserved for the sins they committed so that they in turn could be spared. And then fourthly, and this was so cool, I hope you remember this, restoration. The purpose of the bronze altar and the tabernacle as a whole pointed to restoration. The tabernacle and its furnishings, the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and in the courtyard, were a microcosm or miniature of God's world. Therefore, the tabernacle and its furnishings served as God's pledge to one day fill the whole world with his glorious rule. God was saying, what I'm doing in this space, I'm going to one day do in the whole world. And that is the end of our story. God's glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen? Lastly here, and then we got to jump into our passage. How did the bronze altar point to Jesus in the gospel? Three things. Number one, Jesus came to make an unclean people what? Clean. Two, Jesus is the altar, he's the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement. And number three, of course, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, again, just to be consistent, let's answer the same four questions we've looked at every week. This week we're looking at the courtyard. What is it? What is its purpose? What does the courtyard teach us about God, and how does it point to Jesus in the gospel? So what is it? What is the courtyard? Well, it's a courtyard. The courtyard functioned as another level of separation, a barrier between the world, humanity, and a holy God. The courtyard was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. The barrier itself, this massive courtyard was composed of curtains made, this is really interesting and I'll come back, from the same fabric and the same colors as the curtains used within the tabernacle. The curtains were hung across these vertical pillars and then at the top you had these horizontal poles all the way around to provide Stability. The courtyard itself was seven and a half feet tall, all the way around. Again, 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. Of course, the courtyard housed the tabernacle, and then outside you had the bronze altar and then the bronze laver or basin. It was a place of washing and cleansing, and we'll talk about that eventually. With the tabernacle only taking up one fifteenth of the area of the courtyard, there was plenty of room for sacrifice to take place. And the whole area was about 10,000 square feet. What's its purpose, though? I mean, it's a courtyard. What's the purpose? Walt Kaiser, Old Testament scholar that sounds exactly like Yogi Bear. Brilliant guy, but when you listen to him, you're like, wow, that's, you're waiting for Boo Boo to jump in. <laughs> but he's written uh, extensively on Exodus, and he's helpful here. He, he locates really four purposes of the courtyard. Number one it was a barrier. We've already talked about that, but it was a barrier that prevented unlawful approach. That's number one. Number two, it was protection. It protected against wild animals just coming in. Number three, it was a positive line of demarcation between the world and the holy presence of God. And number four, with its single gate, it was a way of approach to God. Now, as with all The furnishings of the tabernacle and courtyard, the courtyard itself, and more specifically, the the large visible barrier around the tabernacle reminded God's people of God's what? All these layers of separation reminded them that they are unholy and God is what? He's holy. We continue to see this theme. Time and time again, this attribute of God being brought to the forefront, God is holy. Now it's interesting, and I said I would come back to this, it's interesting that the fabrics used to make the barrier surrounding the tabernacle were the same as the curtains within the tabernacle. And this was to prepare God's people for what lay ahead. They were entering a holy space. I want to make sure that we understand the concept of God's holiness before moving on. we got to get this right. This is everything. God is holy. Right? Psalm 99, verse 9, For the Lord our God is what? He is holy. Now, as mentioned last week, let's get simple here. The word holiness means set-apartness or uniqueness. Now, the Hebrew word for holiness is kadosh. Kadosh. It means, you might want to write this down separate and sacred. Separate and sacred. And yet, this is pretty cool. It also means awe, A W E, like, whoa, I'm in awe. Awe inspiring and literally to be treated with caution. <laughs> That's what holiness means. Awe-inspiring and to be treated with caution. Be careful. Uh, man, Lewis made this point so well. So C.S. Lewis in his description of Aslan, the lion, the great lion, and the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. Listen to this conversation between Mr. Beaver and Susan. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. (laughs) Isn't that God? I mean, caution. Beware. We don't just waltz into the tabernacle on our own terms, but God's there are multiple layers of separation. This God is holy. And he's not to be trifled with. Amen? But he's good. He's good. The structure as a whole, the, the tabernacle and the courtyard, all of it. Everybody say all of it. I hope you've been getting this. All of it conveyed God's set-apartness. The multiple layers and the need for a mediator, one to intercede, a priest revealed God's holiness, the need to tread with caution. Now, most apparent in conveying this point was the bronze altar. One could enter only through sacrifice. And of course, the materials used, the blue fabric, the precious metals We're meant to convey God's uniqueness. This is a king's dwelling place. Now let's take a moment to address one more aspect of God's holiness. I want to spend a little more time here. Maybe, Chris, we get it, He's holy, but do you really? Do we really get it that He's holy? I don't think we always live that way. As mentioned earlier, now this is where you got to just get ready. Put on your thinking cap holiness kadosh means awe inspiring think of the grand canyon the first time you, you walk up to the edge you're like what eh no you're like wow this is incredible or a, a texas sunset oh i missed them so much i mean all in, or a, if you live out in the country i mean just a, a clear night the stars you're like wow no one says eh me so god's holiness his all inspiringness Everybody say holiness in glory. Okay, now listen, that's good. You got it. God's holiness and his glory are closely related in the Bible. As one old dead theologian once wrote, God's glory is his holiness revealed. Think about that. God's glory is his holiness revealed. We see this in multiple places in the Bible. Isaiah 6, 3. Isaiah 6-3 is one of the more famous passages in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Isaiah has this vision of God's throne room. And there's these creatures, these seraphim. And they're declaring something about God over and over and over. But listen to what they say. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His what? His glory. God's holiness is revealed through His glory. Glory and his glory result in him being glorified. God reveals his holiness so that we might glorify him, so we might see his glory and respond in awe, wonder, amazement. That is the purpose of God's holiness. His uniqueness is meant to grab our attention. When you see something unique, what, what was that? Right? It's meant to grab your attention. We are meant to be in awe of God's uniqueness. Now, bear with me here. Another example is found in Exodus chapter 3, 2 to 5. So we're gonna go back a few months, several months actually. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a what? A bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that He turned aside to see, God called to Him out of the bush, Moses, Moses! And He said, Here I am. Then He said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is what? Holy ground. Again, God's glory and His holiness are brought together. Here's the point. Here's the point. God's holiness is seen in his mighty revelation and his mighty works, his works which are meant to cause awe and reverence, a response of, wow. This is so neat. And I rarely use that word because I don't really like it. But, I mean, this is cool. This is... Do you guys remember last week we talked about how the tabernacle itself told the story of the Exodus intentionally? It was a visible reminder of God's rescue. It's much like the ordinances that we celebrate. Every time we take the Lord's Supper and we baptize, it is a visible declaration of the good news of Jesus' death. Amen? And that's really what the tabernacle was. It was a visible reminder of God's rescue. Let me show you. The bronze altar... The bronze altar recalled the Passover story of the Exodus. The lamb that was slain in place of the firstborn. The bronze laver filled with water recalled the parting of the Red Sea. The table for bread recalled God's miraculous and generous provision of manna from heaven. All of these things together told the story of God's rescue. This holy place, and what it declared was meant to leave God's people in awe and wonder. His holiness, God's holiness, was meant to inspire and motivate worship from his people. Every time God's people entered into the courtyard, they were confronted with God's holiness, a holiness that was intended to lead them to worship to glorify God in response to his glory. Amen? A holy God demands worship. And a holy people worships in response to the revelation of their holy God. That was the primary purpose of the tabernacle in its courtyard. God had rescued a people for relationship and worship. Now, one more thing. I almost just took this whole part out this morning, but I didn't. I think it's worth hearing. One more thing. I think this will be helpful. The tabernacle intentionally recalled Israel's early situation on the mountain. So this is Exodus 19 to 24. Remember Moses and the elders are called up, but the people have to stay down below limitations are put around the mountain. Like if you even touch the mountain, you're going to, you're done. Why would I share that? Let me just read, I think you'll see why. Exodus 19, 12 to 13. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Okay, so I want to make a comparison here between the tabernacle, the courtyard, and the mountain. Just like with the courtyard and the tabernacle, there are limitations on the mountain due to God's what? His holiness, all right? So uh, Philip Ryken, he notes this. This is helpful. On the mountain... Moses goes up and he experiences God's presence. At the tabernacle, only the high priest might enter the holy place, the most holy place. On the mountain, the people waited at the bottom of the mountain. At the tabernacle, the people are only able to be in the courtyard, right? That's as far as they can go. From all this, we see that there are limitations on interacting with God. So, what do we need? What do we need? We need a mediator. We need a mediator. One to go in for us. One to make a way for us. And we're going to come back to this. Well, how did the people respond to God's holiness on the mountain? His glory on display. That's what His holiness is. His holiness is His glory on display. How did they respond? Exodus twenty eighteen. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Israel trembled before the holiness of God. Awe and wonder at the awesome presence of God, His holiness. The courtyard and the tabernacle were meant to evoke the same response. God's holiness demands reverence. Sadly, our culture is prone to irreverence and even in the church today we dabble in the irreverent i think we do i really do maybe you're thinking chris brother chris we get it god is holy it's important case made but do you really get it do we really get it is it seen in how we live our lives and interact with the world is it seen If if we would say, yeah, we get it, well, is us getting it indicative of how we live our lives? How we interact with the world around us? Do we really get God's holiness? I wonder, is it seen in how we spend our time, our money, how we think about our lives, our priorities? Do you aspire to be holy as He is holy? Is this even on your radar, church? Is it important? It's obvious from the tabernacle that God intended for his holiness to be on display before his people constantly. And this was to inform and in affect how they lived. Number three, what does it teach us about God? I got five things here. I'm going to move quickly. Number one, A, God is holy. Again, this is emphasized by the additional layer of separation between humanity and God. God is holy. But B, God is gracious. I mean, Pastor Aaron mentioned this in his prayer this morning. I mean, we're unholy, and yet God chooses to dwell amongst His people. He chooses to take up residence amongst an unholy and stubborn people. God is gracious. He didn't have to do that. C, God is transcendent. Who knows what that word means transcendent he is above us god is above us he's sovereign again this is seen in the numerous layers of separation between israel and god also think of the ark of the covenant which served as the footstool to god's throne it reminded israel that god ruled in heaven and he brought his rule down to earth he is lord he is the god of heaven who comes down which brings us to our next point. This is important. Yes, God is transcendent. He is Lord. He is above us. We would all agree with that statement, right? God's transcendent. He's above us. But do you know what else? He's also imminent. He's imminent. He, that, that means, not like imminent, like this event is imminent, but I am A N E N T. Imminent. He's close. He draws near. He steps into space and in time. He's a servant, the servant. Now, this is a bit of a paradox, okay? These two ideas, God simultaneously being transcendent above us and imminent near us. But these two truths are held in tension in the person of who? Jesus, the one who dwelt eternally in heaven and yet came down into time and space to live among us and to make a way for sinners like us to be reconciled to God. Jesus is the servant king. E, God is present. The golden lampstand is to remain burning. What did this signify? The Lord is home, and he is present with his people. Last question. How does it point to Jesus in the gospel? The courtyard is open to the east. That's verse 13 if you were listening. Why is that significant that the courtyard is open to the east? Where are we when we come into this world? Anybody born in the Garden of Eden? Anybody's birth certificate say Garden of Eden? No. We're east of Eden, right? We're east of Eden. Genesis 3.24, this is after the fall. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they are kicked out of the garden. Okay, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed The cherubim, these angelic figures and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The Garden of Eden opened to the east, as did the courtyard of the tabernacle, signaling the way back into God's presence. And not only that, but inside the tabernacle, in the holy place, there was a lamp. And what was that lamp doing? It was continually burning, inviting God's people to do what? To come. To come where? Or to whom? To come to the Lord. To come home. Eden, the Garden of Eden, represents humanity's first home. The place of God's presence. This place and this special relationship was forfeited at the fall when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. But God was committed. God in his goodness and grace and his love and mercy and his faithfulness to his saving promises was committed to making a way back for our good and his glory. The tabernacle reveals God's heart and serves as his holy pledge to bring us back home. The light's on and it faces which direction? It faces east toward us which serves both as an invitation and an indicator. So think invitation and indicator. An invitation to come home and an indicator that God is there. Again, how does this point to Jesus in the gospel? Four things here quickly. A, Jesus is the way. Amen? He is the way. (laughs) He is the only way to God. The only way to salvation The only way to eternal life. John 14.6 Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. B, Jesus is the light. He's the light. He is the One who shows us the way to God. He shows us the way to God. John 8.12 And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. C, Jesus is the mediator. He is the one that makes a way to God. So, as the way, He is the way to God. As the light, He is the one who shows us the way to God. And as the mediator, He is the one who makes a way to God. He makes a way to God. Ephesians 2.13 But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Indeed, Jesus is with us. He is God with us. So as the way, he is the only way to God. As the light, he is the one who shows us the way to God. As the mediator, he is the one who makes a way to God. And as Jesus with us, he is God with us. He is God with us. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The courtyard, the tabernacle, and its furnishings all functioned as a glorious invitation to come. To come to the Lord. To come home to His presence. And ultimately, the courtyard, the tabernacle, and all its furnishings pointed to who? To the One who would make a definitive way back to God through His life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ. As the great Puritan John Owen once wrote, everything Moses did in erecting the tabernacle in instituting all its services, was intended to testify to the person and glory of Christ, which would later be revealed. All of this, all of what we're seeing is a pointer to who? It's a pointer to Christ. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Again, the invitation stands. This is a huge theme in Scripture. I thought about this a lot this past week, studying, getting ready for Sunday. Do you realize how many invitations there are in the Scriptures to come to the Lord? You think more than one or two? I think so, and I I provided us with five, and there could have been 500. There's a huge theme in Scripture. God issuing forth an invitation to come. And more specifically, to come to His Son, Jesus for life. The God of invitation, Matthew 11:28 to 30, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy-laden, and I will give you rest." John 7: 37- 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoa!! <laughs> Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Matthew 4.19 And He said to them, this was to the disciples, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. Mark 8.34 This is Luke's special verse. Jesus said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. And then of course, John 6.35 Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our God is an inviting God. And we see this time and time again in the Word. And we see it with the tabernacle. The light's on. Come home. As Tim Chester writes, the tabernacle is open toward us. That's very significant. It's open toward the east. It faces toward us, inviting us home. And we see it most clearly in Jesus. The one who graciously invites us home. Only Jesus can bring us back to Eden. Amen? Only Jesus can bring us back to Eden. Surely all of us get that the law could not save. Remember Paul in Galatians 2.21? What does he say there? If righteousness could be had through the law, then Christ died for no reason, for nothing. The law diagnosed the problem and pointed to the solution. The sacrificial system was not the final answer. Israel was not saved. Now, we got to get this. Israel was not saved by doing certain religious rites and ceremonies, but in trusting in the one to come the seed of Eve that would crush evil, in the seed of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, the seed of David, God's forever king, who would rule perfectly over God's forever kingdom. And later revealed the suffering servant who would be crushed and pierced for our transgressions, the one the sacrificial system pointed to. What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? I would call all of us. Trust Him. Turn from your sin. Know this. I I love this. I heard this years ago from a pastor. I don't remember who it was. But he said, Jesus was treated the way we deserve to be treated so that we could be treated the way he deserves to be treated. Jesus was treated the way we deserve to be treated, so that we could be treated the way he deserves to be treated. He died in place of sinners, and rose again to bring us back to God. Let's end by talking about God's holiness once more. God is holy, amen? Okay, we've established that, we see it. God is holy, and although his holiness is good, it's glorious, it poses a problem for who? Who? For us, why? Because we're not holy by nature. We're not. Therefore, what do we need? We need to be made what? Holy. You know, I I say this a lot, but it's worth repeating. The gospel does two things. Now, listen to this. The gospel does two things. It provides forgiveness. Everybody say forgiveness. Okay. And transformation. Everybody say transformation. All right. So, forgiveness and transformation. I think the second is often most neglected. The Gospel provides positional holiness and personal holiness. God's people, those who have trusted in Jesus, have the Holy Spirit for holy living. And not only have we, those of us who have trusted in Jesus for forgiveness, have been brought into fellowship with God, but we've been given the Holy Spirit God with us for holy living. So that we too can live unique and set apart. And not only that, but we've been given the Holy Spirit to boldly engage in God's mission of making disciples. Those who have responded to the invitation are called to do what with that invitation? If you've responded to God's invitation to come to Jesus and trust in Jesus, and you've done that, what are you now called to do with that invitation? Extend it to others. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, Paul writes. We implore you, Paul says we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. One more application point here. Come to the light. We've established that, the invitation, come to the light, come to Jesus, trust in him for forgiveness in a relationship with God. Share the light. If you've responded to the light, to Jesus, you've Respond to the invitation. You've trusted in him. Now share that invitation with others. Thirdly, worship the light, Jesus Christ. This was one of the points of the golden lampstand remaining lit day and night. It was an invitation to worship the Lord day and night, to meditate on his word day and night. Psalm 134, 1 and 2, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, Who stand by the night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. I want to talk about what may initially seem problematic, and it should the holiness of God and the invitation to come to God. How can we have those two ideas? How can we come to God if God is holy and we're not? It would seem that God's holiness would prevent us from coming. And yet we mustn't forget, as we saw last week, we come to the Lord through what? Through sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The sacrifice of who? Jesus. It is through Jesus that we are declared positionally holy, righteous, and fit for God's presence. It is through our union with Christ by faith that we are declared to be holy, We're able to be with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you trembled in awe before God over your sin and his gracious provision of a substitute? When was the last time you trembled in awe over your sin, your unholiness, but at the same time realizing even though you're a sinner and unholy, God in his goodness has provided a way for you to be forgiven and made right with God. When was the last time you trembled in awe at the cross, the greatest and most glorious display of the holiness and the glory and the love of God? May we end our time together today, this morning, by trembling together in awe. And may the Spirit of God move us to greater degrees of holiness. For holiness is the proper response to the holiness of God. Amen? And you long to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 15-16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am what? I am holy. Three practice steps and then I'm going to pray. Number one, if you're not a believer, if you've not trusted in Jesus, if you're trying to live your life without God, If you're saying, God, I'm on the throne, I'm going to rule, I got this. If that's you, if you right now have rejected Jesus, acknowledge your unholiness and look to Jesus, the perfectly holy one, to be declared holy. There is no other way for sinners to be brought into the presence of God, forgiven and made children of God, but by trusting in the Son of God. Amen? Amen? So trust in Jesus. Acknowledge, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. Trust in Him. And what does He promise to do? Forgive you and make you new and bring you into His family. No longer an object of His wrath, but a child of God adopted into His family. Number two, pursue holiness. Church, this is for you. Be holy. Be set apart. I told our youth on Wednesday night, I said, guys, we were in Psalm 139. And at the end of Psalm 139, David prays and he essentially prays, show me, Lord, show me my life. Search me, know me, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The beginning of that Psalm, God is declared to be all knowing. And David says, know me, you know everything. I want you to know me and if there's anything in me that is not pleasing to you, show me so I can repent and turn from it and follow you, and live for you, and pursue you. Church, listen, there's a holiness problem. Pursue holiness. Pray, God, use your word as a light, and shine it in my heart, and show me areas where I'm not living for you. Maybe it's your speech, or your attitude. And when he does that, when you hold up your life to this word, and you see those areas where you're not living for him, repent. Turn from that. And bring your life by God's grace into conformity to Christ. So be holy, live different. In Christ you can. Here's the good news. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, we who are in Christ have access to for holy living. Amen? And three, practice hospitality. Again, I mentioned this earlier. The the hospitable God we see all over Scripture. We're called to imitate Him, right? So church, open your homes. Open your homes your lives to others for the purpose of doing the one another's and for the purpose of evangelism. Imitate the God of hospitality. So, number one, acknowledge your unholiness and look to the one, Jesus, who can make you holy. Number two, pursue holiness, believers. Number three, practice hospitality. Open your lives in your homes to the body, to the world for evangelism and for doing the one another's with God's church. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need You. We need Your help to understand Your Word. We need Your help to obey Your Word. And we thank You, Father, that through Christ and in Christ, we get the Holy Spirit who shows us what the Word means, who changes our hearts, gives us new hearts so that we want to obey it, giving us the power to obey it. Help us to be a Word-centered church as a body to come under Your Word and what it says in unison we say, we'll do, Lord. I pray lastly, Father, that by your word you would show us areas in our life where we're not pursuing holiness. Maybe it's what we watch. Maybe it's how we talk. Maybe it's our attitude. I pray that you would reveal those things and move your people to repent, to turn from sin. We pray, God, that your holiness would permeate our lives. Help us to be a holy, set-apart church so that we can be more effective for your kingdom work. And I pray for anybody here, Father, that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who has not looked to Jesus for a relationship with God, for forgiveness and new life. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give them new birth, open their eyes to see, one, their sinfulness, but to the goodness of God and the grace of God at the cross, that Jesus, you died in place of sinners, taking the punishment we deserve so that we, by trusting in you, could be forgiven. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time in your word. Use this time. Use what we've heard from your word to make us more like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.